Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Bruce Shermer, a bariatric surgeon from Charlottesville, Virginia, who delivered the inaugural Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery Lecture during Clinical Congress 2022. In his talk, Don't Stop Now, Dr. Shermer discusses the progress of bariatric surgery over the past 40 years and encourages more work to understand the disease of obesity. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. I stand before you humbled and honored at being asked to to give the first dedicated lecture for metabolic and bariatric surgery at the American College of Surgeons meeting. I hail from Virginia, where I've worked my whole career. My connection with Lurian has no conflict with this this, uh, talk, and I've been doing bariatric surgery for a very long time. Thanks especially to the ACS and the ASMBS, and as Dr. Harder mentioned, uh, to Drs. Hoyt, Buchwald, and the executive committee of the ASMBS for giving me this honor. Now, there are, in my opinion, many more deserving speakers to give this talk. I've listed some people here who I personally feel have made monumental contributions to the field, but absolutely everybody who's been a past president of the ASBS and the ASMBS is more deserving to to get up here and have this honor than I. And so I stand humbled before you. I do want to take a minute to thank those who have supported my career in bariatric surgery throughout. My wife, Jerry, and my daughters, Caitlin and Liza, and their husbands, Adam and Zach, have been supportive throughout. I owe a special dedication and thanks to my mentor, Dr. Scott Jones. As you already heard, he is the person that not only taught me surgery, but taught me about quality and quality outcomes in surgery. I've been blessed since 2008 to have a wonderful partner in Dr. Peter Hallowell, who now very capably leads our program in bariatric surgery at Virginia. My original care coordinator and program coordinator, Anna Dietrich Covington, did that job for almost 25 years and has been succeeded by Linda Romeo, who's doing an equally successful and wonderful job. Our APPs, Heather and Caitlin, have added a new dimension to our program. And my office staff, who obviously field all of patient phone calls over the years, have been the foundation for the program. And of course, I owe the entire bariatric staff, as well as the over 25 fellows and many scores of residents who have cared for these patients, my enduring thanks. So my, my goals for this talk are to discuss the progress that bariatric surgery has made in the past 40 years, and it has been impressive. I want to give you the reasons for that success, and unfortunately, I think there are still some areas where we are failing, and how to address those. The first operations for metabolic and bariatric surgery were done to treat uh, refractory hypertriglyceridemia in the 1950s. Now, these were pretty infrequent operations, but in the 1970s, the jejunoileal bypass was performed with some frequency and unfortunately proved to be a disastrous operation. It caused malnutrition, liver failure, and death in a significant number of patients. Many general surgeons in the community had to reverse these operations to their chagrin. Gastric bypass emerged in 1969 and was quickly converted to a Roux-en-Y procedure and enjoyed mild popularity, but over the years has increased its popularity and sustained the test of time as being a 
standard, and wonderful operation for metabolic and bariatric procedures. There were numerous staple operations that were done in the 1980s, and these also had terrible outcomes. However, the vertical band of gastroplasty by Mason emerged in about 1982 as showing very promising results. And it did so for about 15 years, until unfortunately the long-term outcomes for weight loss, as well as refractory stenosis, made that procedure be abandoned. Now, the turn of the, near the turn of the century, 1995, there was the first laparoscopic operation, a gastric bypass done by Alan Whitgrove and, and, and Clark, and that was the harbinger of things to come. More about that in a second. So what was it like to be a bariatric surgeon in the 20th century? My own experience started in 1986, when I went to visit Harvey Sugarman and learned some tips about how he did open gastric bypass, and quickly learned that the patients that were referred to you were done so when it was considered a last-ditch treatment option. Primary care physicians rarely referred patients, even in that situation, if at all. The BMI average for my patients prior to laparoscopy was 54. Uh, significant bias existed in American surgery against bariatric surgeons as well. I personally uh, was the recipient of numerous abstract rejections to major meetings whenever the subject of the abstract was bariatric surgery. And in the 1980s, the ASBS was a very small group. 1991 marked the first sort of established guidelines for doing bariatric surgery nationally by the NIH Consensus Conference. Uh, this was adhered to by surgeons and payers, but unfortunately, over the last many years, it has become outdated. Now, I will say, it, it, since then, since, it was, since 1991, there's been significant data to show the benefits of metabolic and bariatric surgery for not only class one uh, obesity, but also for other medical problems. And very fortunately, uh, and I applaud the fact that the ASMBS, with its uh, fellow organization, if so, the international organization, has just now recently released new guidelines for indications for metabolic and bariatric surgery. The updates are applauded and welcome. So in 1990, laparoscopic cholecystectomy started, and by 1994, laparoscopy had swept the general surgery world, and most cases were being done laparoscopically, except for pancreatic, bili uh, pancreatic hepatic, uh, and bariatric surgery. Now, in 1995, Whitcrobe did that first bariatric operation, and by about 1998 or 1999, most bariatric surgeons were doing or offering laparoscopy as their preferred choice of approach for bariatric surgery. What did that do to the, in, to the uh, procedures done in the US? This is what it did. This is almost an exponential increase in cases over that period of time. And you can see that this was totally due to the ability to offer patients a laparoscopic option for their procedure. They flocked to get this done. I've always called this time the bariatric revolution, and it was a revolution because the number of cases were up nearly eightfold from just 1999 to 2003. ASBS membership tripled from 98 to 2003. But let me tell you, the laparoscopic uh, patients, the, the, the patients who were getting laparoscopic procedures, really had a different perception of what was going on, as did their primary care providers. When I was giving my, uh, getting ready to give my presidential speech for SAGES in 2003, I surveyed my patients and my primary care referring doctors about their attitudes for referring and patients and for outcomes for both 
uh, open and, and uh, laparoscopic bariatric surgery. And what I found that was that the primary care doctors really felt that there was an amazingly better outcomes expected for laparoscopic surgery than the data showed. In fact, some of the primary care doctors and many of the patients felt that this procedure wasn't even really surgery. So uh, that was their attitude, and, and it was uh, a way of misperception, but it certainly resulted in a significant increase in the number of cases, and with good results, the good results followed. Now, at that time also was the first time I really ever experienced patients with a BMI of 40 to 45 being referred to me, and there were times I walked through my waiting room at my clinic, I wasn't sure I was in the right place. So suddenly, bariatric surgery was a big source of revenue. That got the attention of department chairs and of uh, heads of hospital. Academic departments discovered it, and it was soon accepted as not only contributing to the bottom line, but being an important part of the cases that were done on a weekly basis. For residents, the MIS career option doing bariatric surgery became very uh, stimulating and challenging, and there was suddenly a great demand for fellowships to do this. And so essentially, laparoscopy really brought bariatric surgery almost instant, accept instant acceptance into mainstream surgery. But what about the payers? Well, can, you can imagine if you were sitting in the insurance office and your budget for bariatric surgery had gone up eightfold in the past few years. What would you do? Well, what they decided to do was declare that laparoscopic bariatric surgery was experimental and they weren't going to pay for it. So this pretty nefarious act by insurance companies resulted when one of the power brokers was financially threatened. The denial of services was clearly on an economic basis and really brought insurance companies to an all-time low in terms of accountability. What was the bariatric surgeon community's reaction to this? Well, the ASBS leadership went to the insurers and asked them what was the issues and what were the problems. They said that one of the problems was that there were too many complications from surgeons just learning how to do laparoscopy and performing these procedures. So, Walter Pores and other leaders formulated the concept of having centers of excellence. Surgeons would have to perform cases that were, the outcomes were recorded, and if the outcomes at that center were adequately uh, excellent, the center would be recognized as a center of excellence, and the cases would be reimbursed. And so that started the systems, and they were, they were performed, uh, the criteria for these were developed by both ASBS and the ACS around the 2004-2005 era. Within a year, payments were linked to these outcomes, and insurers, both statewide and nationally, uh, were paying for these procedures. What was really uh, a strong stimulator for that was the CMCS decision in 2005 that obesity, uh, that Medicare would pay for bariatric surgery for recipients under age 65 who qualified by the NIH guidelines and had surgery done at centers of excellence for either system. Also, and I think even more importantly, was their decision in 2005 to declare obesity as a true disease. So we had both the ASMBS and the ACS forming centers of excellence that um, attempts were made to merge, but they were unsuccessful in 2012 when under the auspices of David Hoyt and Robin Blackstone, the two merged under the college to form the Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery Accreditation and Quality Improvement Program which has been the standard for both the college and other organizations for quality metrics for improving surgery 
measuring outcomes, and showing definite improvements in outcomes. And Dr. Harder was, as, as he's already alluded to, much more responsible for much of this than he gave himself credit for. The other thing that the payers and insurance companies said was, well, there really isn't that much data in the literature about the efficacy of bariatric surgery. So bariatric surgeons got busy and quickly started publishing the data that they already had and the outcomes that they knew were already very good. Large meta-analyses came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine and the Journal of American College of Surgeons within a year after that. In McGill, Christou and his group showed that bariatric gastric, laparoscopic gastric bypass produced a 67% excess weight loss in patients and also a reduction of mortality from 6.17% down to 0.6% or a death reduction rate of 89%. Data from that same study, same center, showed that the cost of bariatric surgery was amortized over about 3.5 years, such that after five years, patients in the medical group had higher medical costs than those in the surgical group. The Swedish obesity study, which is the longest um, followed group of patients for, medical, for uh, surgical therapy versus um, conser conservative therapy, had its data first published in 2007, which showed a definite statistical improvement in weight loss, but also mortality for patients in the surgical arm. Those data have been subsequently confirmed by the 20-year follow-up data, which were published uh, in 2017. Ted Adams and his group did this population study uh, looking at uh, almost 10,000 patients undergoing gastric bypass and comparing them to a like number of individuals uh, with obesity on applied driver's license applications. They found that the death rate for the two groups was just significantly different with the uh, patients undergoing gastric bypass having a 37% versus a 57% death rate uh, per year. The NIH funded a longitudinal study in assessment of bariatric surgery done at multiple medical centers, and that data was published in 2009. It showed that for laparoscopic gastric bypass, the death rate had decreased to 0.2%, and the reoperation rate had decreased to 3.2%. Data from the BOLD database, which was the ASMBS uh, database prior to merging, showed in its last year of existence that gastric bypass had a mortality rate in the left column, as you see, of 0.15%, a length of stay of 2.4 days, and a reoperation rate of 2.8%. Included on this chart are data from laparoscopic adjustable gastric banding, which did enjoy significant popularity in the country between 2003 and 2011. But about that time, it was realized that it was not a powerful enough operation for most patients to, pr to produce sustained weight loss and was generally abandoned thereafter. There are also some sleeve data here, which I'll touch on shortly. So in my opinion, and actually in the opinion of other experts at major medical meetings, sleeve gastrectomy was introduced as an accepted bariatric procedure, and its introduction was not associated with any major learning curve uh, by surgeons performing a procedure which usually had been noted for almost all previous operations introduced. So this operation now has become the most popular operation done both U.S. and pretty much worldwide. These data, for which Matt Hutter was the senior author, uh, were from the Bariatric Surgery Center Network for the American College of Surgeons, and they showed that, this, and these were the first data really published on sleeve gastrectomy, they showed that sleeve gastrectomy was intermediate between lap band and gastric bypass for a 30-day mortality, 
30-day morbidity, and 30-day reoperation rate. So let's just take a minute to, to consider the fact that here we have large numbers of patients undergoing gastric bypass who have a 0.14% mortality rate. That is in comparison to studies that were published in the early 90s where the mortality rate was 2%. So that's a tremendous, well over tenfold reduction in mortality in less than two decades. In, in, interestingly enough, morbidity, length of stay, and other parameters similarly decreased with this. So it shows that with care and with measurement and by carefully following our outcomes, the people in the bariatric surgery community produce these tremendous uh, benefits to our patients over that time frame. Now, another aspect that I haven't really emphasized is the fact that these aren't just bariatric operations, but they are metabolic operations. They affect the comorbid conditions that occur with obesity to a great de degree. Walter Pories and his group published way back in 1987 the fact that they observed that almost all their patients with diabetes had the diabetes go away within four months after gastric bypass. And they hypothesized that this may not be to just weight loss alone. And they were so right. Since then, so many studies have been done on gastric bypass alone to document changes in glucose metabolism, GLP-1 secretion, ghrelin secretion, PPY secretion, and other active GI hormones, and other changes that truly make the, uh, confirm the fact that gastric bypass is a metabolic operation. And the same has been true for sleeve gastrectomy and the other commonly performed bariatric operations. I could go on for hours showing you those data, but I will just say that this has been established. In addition, there are tons of articles in the literature showing the effectiveness on resolution of comorbid problems. What I did was I just took our data from about 10 years ago for laparoscopic gastric bypass as representative of these data, showing that for our gastric bypass patients, there was at one year after surgery, there was resolution of diabetes in 80% of cases, reflux in 90% of cases, hypertension in over half, sleep apnea in over 70%, for venous stasis all patients were improved, and for asthma over 90% were improved. The question of surgical therapy versus medical therapy was finally put to rest when Phil Schauer and his group published this data from the first stampede trial in which patients were randomized Patients with uncontrolled diabetes, insulin-dependent, were randomized to either optimal medical therapy or sleeve gastrectomy or gastric bypass. The endpoint was a hemoglobin A1C under 6, and at one year, 42% of the bypass patients and 37% of the sleeve patients had achieved that versus 12% of the medical patients, data that were significant and impressive. In addition, the medical patients were on more diabetic, hypertensive, and statin medications and, than the surgical patients. It was data like this that ultimately led the American Diabetes Association to finally declare uh, bariatric surgery and gastric bypass as an appropriate treatment for diabetes. I think we owe an, a real debt to Phil Schauer and John Morton, who really have liaisoned with other medical societies and groups to further uh, expand the influence of bariatric surgery in other medical circles. So, you've come a long way, baby. Bariatric surgery status relative to surgical professional recognition, monitored outcomes, outcomes publication, and procedural safety has been truly phenomenal. I'm going to just go through some of the details one more time. For professional recognition, 
In the, 80, in the 80s, the ASPS was a fledgling organization, and bariatric surgery was somewhat marginalized. By the 90s, there was still some persistent discrimination by surgical colleagues, but I think that changed around 2000, when Phil Schauer had the lead paper on the American Surgical Association meeting. Since then, our development and use of the MBSAQIP has really uh, garnered our professional reputation. And thanks to the leadership recently of the ASMBS, last year the American Board of Surgery designated bariatric surgery as the first focused designated practice in surgery. When it comes to monitored outcomes, MBSAQIP is the standard for all programs as reimbursement is tied to outcomes and is really the flagship of the college's uh, uh, quality programs. Measuring it has led to improving it, without a doubt. In terms of outcomes, publications, I've already shown you data to confirm improved survival, improvement of comorbid problems, cost-effectiveness, long-term efficacy, and effectiveness versus medical therapy. And so, when it comes to the safest abdominal operations, we got bariatric surgery at 0.15% mortality rate. Compare that to elective cholecystectomy, which is just the same. But appendectomy is higher, cardiac catheterization is higher, C-section is significantly higher, knee replacement is a lot higher, carotid endarterectomy is way higher, and colon resection is over 10 times higher. Now, who would have predicted that 25 years ago? So the accomplishments really have been amazing. The bariatric surgery community has elevated the practice of metabolic and bariatric surgery to new heights. It's an ex it, the procedures are extremely safe, and they are highly effective. Most centers now do overnight procedures, or many are actually come to doing uh, same outpatient day procedures. But I urge all of you, don't rest on our laurels, and don't stop now. What's the issues that remain? There's really one big one, and that's it. Now, the bariatric surgeons in the audience are just cringing because they know exactly what this is. And the fact is that every year, only 1% of patients eligible for bariatric surgery actually get it. Now, suppose you worked for a manufacturing company, and you had designed this product for about 20 years, and you had put a lot of work into it and had really improved it, and you went to the CEO and you said, you know, we've got the best product in the market for solving this problem. You know, it really works better than anything else out there. It's highly safe in a market where safety is really important. And, you know, it's just wonderful. And we're so proud of it. The CEO says to you, well, what's your market penetration? And you say, well, it's 1%. Well, I bet you that you and your marketing VP would be looking for work pretty shortly after that conversation. The fact is, we are terrible at marketing and terrible at getting our message out to patients. You know, it's just abysmal that these procedures, which are so effective, so safe, and have been developed to be, be so good, and offer patients such an, a metamorphosis in life. I mean, when you see these patients post-op, they really under, do undergo a metamorphosis. All of them say they're so glad they did it, they should have done it years earlier. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to, to see the post-op patients in clinic and tell you, and they tell you how great these procedures are and what they've done to change their lives but only 1% of people get it. So the answer is why? Well, we have to ask that question, and, and maybe, maybe the problem starts with us. So this review article looked at all the surveys on obesity done in the first decade of the 21st century. Now, 
granted the dates, data is maybe 10 or 15 years old, and you could say, oh, well, you know, in that time period, we've gotten much more acceptable and understanding toward each other, and there's a much more lenient attitude in the country. Well, I don't think so. Not in this country, not in the last 10 years. So let's just take these data for what they are. 620 GPs in England were surveyed around 2005, and 50% of them gave the labels of awkward, ugly, and non-compliant to their patients with obesity. They also, a third of them described the patients as weak-willed, sloppy, and lazy. Only 14% of these physicians felt they were ever successful in helping patients with obesity lose weight. The article went on to say there were numerous other articles which extended, said the bias in the medical profession extended certainly to medical students, nurses, and dietitians. Other articles showed that 53% of women with obesity received inappropriate comments from physicians about their weight. And surveys showed the strong evidence for job discrimination, wages discrimination, healthcare provider discrimination, and media ridicule for patients with obesity. Why? Well, actually, when you look at the other surveys from this article, the public still perceives, and did then and does now, that obesity is a byproduct of laziness. They perceive that this is a personal issue you can fix yourself. And certainly that surgery is much too radical for treating a problem that can be fixed without it. Why would you need surgery to fix something that you can certainly treat yourself? Now, backing up that opinion is the massive diet market. Over 45 million Americans every year go on a diet and spend $33 billion on diet products. The message from these products is, well, you know, you can lose weight if you just follow our directions and do everything we say. So obviously, if you don't lose weight, it must be your fault. Well, in fact, if you look carefully at the follow-up studies of patients on diets and diet therapy, the ones that have the best follow-up and the most accurate data show that the success for patients keeping any substantial amount of weight off for more than five years is about 3%. Even the diet industry will admit that their success rate is 5%. So that seems like an awful lot of expense and effort for very little results. And the consequences of diet failure are not zero. Repetitive failures by patients lead to disenchantment and an increased incidence of depression. The disease of obesity is chronic and cannot be easily treated with dieting. We need to begin preaching that message. There's a lot of data that have shown that obesity is a chronic disease. The most recent estimate shows that about 70% of, of uh, obesity is based on genetic influence. There are multiple genetic components to this, multiple different gene uh, sources that show different upregulation and, uh, and expression based on environment and, their, about, and the amount of upregulation that they have. And there are also multiple factors which affect obesity, about which some, some of which we know very little, especially satiation and appetite. We really know very me mechanistically very little about how that works. The metabolic rate for patients with obesity differs from those for patients without. And it's been clearly shown that patients who undergo bariatric surgery have changes in their gut flora, bile acid composition, and glucose disposal, and body inflammatory processes after surgery, all of which reflect a different metabolic process uh, because, the, the, because clearly obesity itself is a different disease that is now being treated. And so the public still has a lack of understanding that obesity is a chronic disease. 
They have a lack of understanding that individuals with obesity are not lazy. We need to get that message to them. We need to show that a lack of acceptance that for severe obesity, surgery is an appropriate treatment and not a weakness. I mean, we've got a great product, and we need to make the public understand that it should be used in the appropriate situations without any shame. In fact, really, obesity is the last unlegislated discrimination in our society. Unfortunately, it, it continues to increase, and the surveys have shown that the um, anti-obesity sentiment against it has not changed in the last 10 years, despite the fact that the incidence of, of obesity in the population has continued to increase, where today it's estimated that almost 40% of American women are obese and men are not far behind. Obesity is a real problem and is the reason that today longevity is no longer predicted to be longer for our newborn babies than in the past, and that is largely attributed to obesity. So think about that. So how do we change public opinion? Is it possible against such entrenched thoughts and biases? Has it ever been done before? Well, I thought about one option, one option, or one instance, and I think it has. Smoking. When I was a teen, or when I was a child, smoking was accepted. In the 1960s, smoking hit its peak, and almost over 47 percent of the American population smoked. By by um, 60 years ago, it was just considered normal, and everybody smoked. In fact, um, under a recent radio broadcast, listening to the Yankees. They said that Roger Maris gave the boy who caught his 61st home run a cigarette lighter as a present for giving him the ball. So how did the attitudes change? Well, actually reports confirming that smoking was tied to, uh, to, uh, to cancer and to emphysema started as early as the 1950s. But in 1964, there was a, a, a definitive general, uh, Surgeon General's report that confirmed that smoking did cause lung cancer and was dangerous to health. And so the public began to take notice. So it started with undeniable data. The tobacco companies, of course, organized counter campaigns and said, oh, we'll just develop filters for the cigarettes and it'll be all fine. But of course, the filters didn't affect carcinogenic smoke one bit. But despite this, the public perception did begin to change in the 1960s. So you can see by this uh, chart that in 1966, 40 percent of Americans felt that smoking was a major cause of cancer. By 2001, that number had increased to 71 percent. Now, you'd think maybe it would be even higher. You'd think, why not? But, you know, when you think about it, 11 and 16, 27 percent, eh, that's about the percentage of the population that has trouble believing facts about a lot of things, including smoking, vaccinations, presidential elections. So, by 2011, smoking dropped to under 20 percent of the population, and the per capita consumption was down 70 percent. Major advances. This was despite $250 billion spent on tobacco advertising. Now, that would be actually just a little less than diet products over those years, but still, it does show that um, these, uh, these giant monopolies can be overcome. So major factors influenced the change not only the data and the media publication of the data, but also cigarette ads were banned in TV and radio starting in 1971. 
public smoking started to be banned in certain areas beginning in the 1990s. And cigarette taxes became massively increased on cigarettes, making smoking much more expensive for those who did it. The tobacco company counter programs actually start, uh, slowed down in 2000 because by 1998 there had been class action suits against the tobacco companies for billions of dollars that needed to be settled. So it took three generations before there was a fairly uniform change in attitude towards smoking. I think, unfortunately, we face a similarly lengthy process if we're to change obesity to public attitudes towards obesity. I'd like to think it's going to be sooner, though. I'd like to think it's going to be faster. However, we are definitely at that point now in the 60s where the data is becoming undeniable about chronic obesity and its need for treatment. So what worked against smoking? Well, data, education, mass media, increased difficulty to perform smoking, increased cost to perform smoking, and legal backup. And I think for all of these, probably we can use all of them except perhaps increased uh, difficulty to perform for, for eating. So, so what can we do? I'm going to just emphasize areas in data, education, mass media, elimination of the discrimination of obesity, paying for rational but likely successful treatments, limitations on poor nutritional habits, and legal backup in a little bit more detail. But these are the main things that we need to be doing and we need to be working on in order to change public opinion so that our treatments for obesity are accepted. We need to stay informed about the newest discoveries in the etiology of obesity as they unfold and encourage these items in mass media. Most importantly, we need to educate our own profession on the fact that obesity is a chronic disease and surgery is not only appropriate, but effective in treating its severe form of morbid obesity. Patients with obesity have a disease, not a personality disorder. This teaching needs to become an immediate part of the curriculum in medical and nursing schools, where I'm almost certain it doesn't exist. We need to expand the message to other disciplines in medicine, wherever we have the opportunity. And we need to advocate publicly and, uh, and have a really uh, much more aggressive advocacy group. The cause needs a more active, organized, and energetic patient base. And we all need to work toward elimination of anti-obesity discrimination. Programs that use modern medications and appropriate support systems in effectively uh, demonstrating efficacy and producing weight loss should be financially reimbursed. Right now, General practitioners do not get reimbursed for treating obesity. They only get reimbursed for treating the comorbid problems with it. And we need to continue programs that eliminate junk food in schools. And we also need to think about having limits on the size of sugary drinks and desserts and portions. Uh, we also need to provide better access to healthier foods in current food deserts and, and, and see that those people in those populations do have access to fresh and nutritious food. Finally. Legal backup would really enforce all of it. It would be wonderful to encourage the legal test case that shows discrimination on the basis of obesity is harmful to health. We should encourage legal backup of limits on food serving size and other measures. It would be great to reinforce reimbursement for medical treatment for the disease of obesity, and it will probably take that for the insurers to cover it. But certainly, we don't treat obesity on an island. We all have, we are involved with multidiscipline teams. And now I urge all of you to be open and to embrace other non-surgical measures which effectively treat degrees of obesity, such as new endoscopic procedures. Also, 
I urge you to include your medical colleagues who have an armamentary of new medications and effective uh, pharmacologic agents that help uh, fight obesity in your patients. Together, we need to work together to treat this problem. So, let's get after the 1%. We've just got to do better. We just have to. So don't stop now. We've got a lot to do for our patients. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.